Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Welcome, everyone. On today's podcast, we have Daniel Korsky. Uh, he is the CEO and co-founder of Public, and I am not going to go into what Public is just yet because we want to cover your background. Welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you have one of these backgrounds that is just, I don't even know where to begin because it's so rich and, and it has so many elements of like so many cool TV shows, everything from like Homeland <laughs> to Jack Ryan to, you know, uh, House of Cars and everything. So um, just to sort of name drop a couple of your titles, you were head of pol political military affairs. You were the committee specialist for the House of Commons Defense Committee, advisor to the Minister of Counter Narcotics. So that's uh, CTU at, uh, with Jack Bauer, <laughs> um, Deputy Head of UK Government Stabilization Unit, uh, and many more, including uh, Senior Advisor of the US Department of State. So you've done multiple types of, of governments, so not just mm -hmm. obviously the UK, but also uh, European, uh, US, and um, you're involved with the European Commission. So I don't know where to begin as I've never really interviewed somebody as, as, as well-versed in government as you are. Maybe you can give us a little bit of a journey from what you studied in school, what was your first job, and and what does that journey mean if you help us unpack it? Sure. Um, I guess you always face this question when you're being asked, particularly in job interviews, uh, about your background, which is what what story should you tell? You know, should you tell that really like logical, chronological story that that people who um, tend to populate HR departments kind of look for? They tick the boxes. Yes, you're the right person. Or should you tell people the real story? And the reality is, as the Danish uh, philosopher Søren Kierkegaard said, you live your life forward. In other words, you have no idea what's happening, but you only understand it backwards. And the reality is, um, I can tell you an incredibly logical kind of uh, tale about my life, and it wouldn't really work. So I'm going to tell you the truth, which is um, I fell in love with a Bosnian refugee uh, at university. And she said, look... Um, you know, my country's gone through extraordinary turmoil um, and it's now rebuilding itself after the bloodshed of the late 1990s. And she, uh, and she asked if I wanted to come and join her um, in rebuilding her country, which I then did. And uh, I ended up in Sarajevo. Our relationship didn't last, but, uh, but I ended up in Sarajevo. And, and after she'd left, uh, I figured I might as well stay. And I ended up living there for four years, learned the language, um, ended up working for an NGO. From that, I got a job at the UN. Um, and from, from that job, um, really my career kind of developed. And, and what really happened was um, I found myself in one of these interesting moments in time where the geopolitics of the world suddenly converged onto like my, my professional path, which is to say I'd spent four years rebuilding Bosnia um, along with many others after the war, working for then Paddy Ashdown, who'd been the Lib Dem leader in the UK, but had become the UN high representative in Bosnia. Uh, and as I was getting ready to come back to the UK, um, you know, the war on terror had kind of um, begun to reach its zenith with the US-led coalition um, invading a number of different countries. And once these uh, military operations had taken place, people started realizing that you needed civilians around who were comfortable operating in a complex, dangerous, fast-moving civil military environment. And the reality is that there weren't really that many of us around. There were, there were some people who'd 
been working in, in Asia um, or in the early 90s. There were some people who'd, who'd been working in uh, as part of the democratic transition in South Africa. And then there were those of us who'd been working in the Balkans. But on the whole, there weren't really a lot of people. So suddenly we were kind of um, hot commodity. And as a result of that, um, I was sent to lots of different places by the British government. I have to say, I was also young and carefree and didn't think bullets could hurt me and thought that if uh, good could be done in the world, then, you know, I could do it. And that is really what led me to go to places like Kabul and Basra and southern Iraq and so on. Wow. And so that was kind of some of the jobs you did, like Basra's provisional reconstruction team. Yeah. So I ran the reconstruction of the of the largest province in, in Iraq after the invasion. And so maybe you give us a little bit of insight as to how government manages initiatives like those. Like, how is it that you get allocated? How is it that people lobby towards getting something like that done? Maybe it's a little bit of combination of explaining the basics of foreign policy, but also how you become the, the tip of the spear in, in, in acting it. Yeah, I guess you could say that uh, that that government is a bit like standing at a train station and looking at the trains. There are certain trains that leave, you know, on the hour, every hour, and they've been doing so for years and years and years. You know, the budget process takes place, and everybody kind of knows what that train looks like, and everybody gets on to the to the to the train in the compartment that they've been allocated. So everybody kind of knows how that works. And the same thing in government. You know, you've got the budget process and and other such things happens every year, and everybody knows how it how it operates. What happens on the train may be different year to year. Uh, you know, in the fallow years, the eating <laughs> compartment may be uh, not catering the sort of expensive food and so on and so forth. But people know what's going on. And then, you know, you have the kind of express trains or the special trains. And these are the kind of trains that are put on because government suddenly has to do something they've never done before. And sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's really hard. Government on the whole is good at the first bit. It's been honed to a fine art. People have been recruited to do it. They've been trained to do it. And But the second kind of train is really hard. And what happened was when the war on terror began and the U.S.-led coalition began engaging in a series of expeditionary operations, as they're called when you send the military overseas, there really was a dearth of experience of how you kind of put a train like that together and you know who you can ask to populate the train, and so on and so forth. And so slowly, of course, experiences were had on the ground, institutions were built up. A unit that I came to be part of the leadership of, the stabilization unit, was created within government from different departments to say, right, we need some people who can work with the military, but who can work on you know, the financial infrastructure of a country or the, you know, the military and how we reform the defense forces and the policing. And all these things then kind of kind of accrue. And then, you know, you enter a period where for political or strategic reasons, there's less of an interest in, in doing that kind of work. And then these units, you know, on the whole wither on the vine. Government isn't very good at discontinuing things. It just sort of makes them less and less relevant until a very few people sort of seek employment in those units. But they sort of continue. Once in a while, they get closed down. Mm. Um, and then new challenges emerge. So maybe if we if we use tech uh, in government as one of those trains, for example, I think one of the things I've never understood, maybe other people may share the same uh, confusion, is when does an initiative become part of a regular train versus just a sprint because it's the word of du jour? So you know when when um, when you look at the tech industry as something that's been supported in different countries, we don't have to be specific about the UK, but it's like 
initiatives having to do with startups, startup jobs and all these things, they can spur up as part of like this express train because of what they might promise um, or what a, a party might benefit from promising. But how do you, how do, how do initiatives like that become part of the regular train? How long does it take? Can it ever survive a government that has been elected or does it have to start off from um, an initiative that isn't led by a party, which can be voted out of the office? I think it's a great question. Um, and I don't know if we can say anything intelligent about how it happened in the past, because of course it's true that we've had periods in the UK and elsewhere um, where there's been greater focus on private enterprise and entrepreneurship, you know, in particular the Thatcher years where the likes of David Young, now Lord Young, kind of came into government from the outside. He was an entrepreneur before he became a minister. And after he was a minister, he went back to being an entrepreneur. So we have had periods like that. But I think we also are living in quite a unique moment where the cost and the effort of building a new company has now you know, collapsed to a degree that is almost unheard of. And the technological means to do so um, are more readily available to more people than ever before. So I think it's hard for me to see how we kind of go back on that. Once, once some of those changes have taken place, it's hard to imagine a kind of post-startup period. Um, the question is then, but will the government be as enthusiastic about it as they are now? And of course, now or in the last sort of, shall we say, uh, eight, ten years or so, maybe a bit more, there's obviously been a kind of excitement about the newness of entrepreneurship or technology-enabled entrepreneurship. Um, there's been a cultural geist, you know, obviously coming out of the valley, but something that's spread across the world to the point where, you know, children at, at school and students at universities, they want to join the entrepreneurship society rather than, you know, the management society as it may have been, you know, in the late... 1990s when yeah. people graduated. So I think there's there's been a definite distinctive difference now um, to the point where I think it's quite a fundamental part of the way government works and thinks about the economy. At the same time, the reality is that in a country like the UK, and I dare say most other countries, um, the startup ecosystem, even though it's um, disrupting large uh, sectors, is in no way the economic mainstay of, of the country. Um, you know, this, the UK's economy still, um, depends on chemicals, defense industry, pharmaceuticals, um, all of which, and of course, business services, uh, four industries that are to a large degree undisrupted by startups. So, um, there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm about what new companies can do and achieve. And there's a lot of belief, I think rightly so, that they will be transformative for the economy as a whole. But at the same time, the economy as a whole still relies on a number of very traditional sectors, each one of which has a very large incumbent player. Mm. Well, I want to come back and revisit that because especially in light of public and, and what you guys are doing and maybe how you interconnect with those industries, but if we come back a little bit to your to your background, um, if we kind of fast forward some of the things that you did, you spent probably a, a meaningful amount of time at 10 Downing Street. Mm. And, you know, I just wanted to give you a chance to highlight uh, some of the, the things that so you're most proud of during your tenure there as special advisor and deputy head of policy that, that people can look back and, and thank you for, for some of the 
initiative there. <laughs> I don't know if they should be thanking me. You know, part of the job of a special advisor is to kind of oil the wheels, mm-hmm. um, but stay in the background. Um, you know, I think I'm I'm really proud of the work that we did to establish the government's digital service and to try to bring the government into um, you know the 21st century. I certainly wasn't the first to begin that work. In fact, you know, the work began under Tony Blair and the office of the Envoy uh, and colleagues uh, that came before me. You know, built it. But I'm proud that we took it to the place that we did to a point where there's been nothing short of a digital revolution in the way government thinks about how it delivers its services. We can come on to that, and I'll be the first to say government isn't good enough at thinking about how technology can deliver those services better, but it is now front and center of everything that government does, and I'm, I'm really proud of, of having participated in that. Um, and I'm, I think we're all, I'm also very proud of having supported an entrepreneurial ecosystem, you know, keeping tax advantages where they are, ensuring that we've had a, we had an immigration policy that attracted and kept talent in the UK, uh, ensuring support for R&D, you know, public sector R&D, as well as private sector R&D. And those are some of the things that may not get you the headline today, but it's the sort of stuff that allows for the headlines to be written tomorrow. Hmm. So you mentioned a lot of policies there that are probably worth sort of jumping back on in light of all the changes that are happening in our country. But maybe this is a good chance as any to to talk a little bit about the transition from your role in, in 10 Downing to becoming founder of, of uh, a public. So maybe you can do two things. One of them is describing what public does and is, but also defining what GovTech is. And maybe explain how it went from one to the other. Exactly. Um, I guess the first thing to say is the reason why I made the jump was I felt that uh, that almost everywhere I looked, from advertising to retail, technology and an entrepreneurial culture were coming together with venture capital to, to transform markets for the benefit of consumers. And yet I wasn't really seeing that across the vast suite of public services. The way that you deal with juvenile delinquents, the way that we manage um, the armed forces, the way that welfare payments are operated. Um, and in each one of these areas, I could see a thousand different ways in which they could be done better if enabled by new technology, and yet it wasn't happening. And so I grew increasingly frustrated while in government. And I sort of wanted to go and work for somebody who was trying to bring the things together, but I couldn't find I couldn't find that entity. I couldn't find that person. And so I decided with my co-founder, Alex de Cavara, to build that organization because we sort of felt that something like public had to exist. Um, and you may remember, Carlos, that I came to see you yeah. Uh, to seek your advice. So partly you have to take some of the blame for whatever wow. has happened since. Um, but you gave great advice. Um, and, and, and what we wanted to do was to solve the problem as we had perceived it, which was an absence of capital to those who wanted to wrestle with the challenges of public services and a dearth of insight uh, and insufficient access. So... The founders who may be interested, they aren't getting uh, capitalized in order to go on the journey. Um, They didn't really have a sufficient insight to understand how to fit the product to the market. And even if they had the money and knew how to build a product that would fit to the market, they didn't really know who to speak to in order to position themselves in in a different way than the incumbents. 
who didn't really have technology or, or innovative products still today many a few do but they have this sort of mode of process you know they're very good at engaging decision makers they've got capital to spend on you know, writing tender documents and so on and so forth mm-hmm. but if you take a step back and you say okay well capital access and insight you know you know you're not putting a man on the moon like this is like basic stuff even i can do it and and so that's really kind of what animated the creation of public if we could provide capital access and insight then we thought we could make a real transformative leap and we thought that the uk given you know some of the work that i've been doing and the likes of francis maud and mike bracken and Martha Lynch fox and many others um given what they've been doing we thought we could probably position the uk as the best place for GovTech companies to, to emerge. And that may be a good point to explain what GovTech is. Um, well, in short, it's technology that seeks to transform public services. Now, is it a specific technology? Well, both yes and no. In certain areas of the public sector, there are certain particular requirements that are very unique to the public sector. There are certain things that the intelligent community does. There are certain things that a hospital will do. Um, you're, you're highly unlikely to find the exact same application. But in many other areas, it's the application of technologies that we might see elsewhere to a specific you know, market context. And GovTech kind of encapsulates both, much as FinTech today encapsulates both infrastructural uh, companies as much as kind of B2C companies. Mm. Um, the reality is when we set off on this journey, we kind of needed to find a new language to talk to the market with. We felt that if we come along and said, hey, we know that you um, have been buying from these incumbents for so long, um, but we can do it all better. And and if we were speaking the same language that everybody had been speaking until then, we didn't think that we'd have space to present the, the wares, as it were, of the new companies. And so we took this term GovTech out of a a World Bank report from the 1980s, and we, you know, we we tried to breathe life into it. In a way, I I kind of joke. I say we took public sector ICT and made it sexy by talking about it, um, you know, using the phrase GovTech. So part of what I want to cover in this episode is dispelling some of the myths around working with government and working in government. Um, and I guess one of the things that we can address is the perception of uh, customer concentration that GovTech companies might have. So as you describe what public is trying to do, it would, it would seem to be that you're uh, breaking out different municipalities or different industries or different initiatives as different customers. But one could argue that they're all part of the same budget, which is the macro government budget. Or one could argue that they're subject to the same changes in government uh, direction policy or one of those express trains as you describe it. So maybe as, as a way of dispelling one myth, it's how does it scale beyond a single customer? How do, how do you think about with GovTech companies to have a diversified set of customer revenue diversification mm. rather than it just looking like it's really only one customer and if that customer stops buying, you're done? I guess I'd answer that in two ways. First of all, to say government is one customer is a bit like saying the ad industry is one customer. Mm. You know, government... Um, is a myriad of customers at different levels, with different budgets, with different purchase cycles, um, with different priorities and different interests. And sometimes they're aligned and sometimes they're contradictory. And that's really great because it allows you to sell not just to, you know, 
the land registry, but to, you know, a, a plethora of other organizations, all of whom may be interested in geospatial data, um, just to pick one example. Um, so I think, I think the first thing I'd say is government isn't one customer, which is the ad industry or the retail industry isn't one customer. Um, and on the question of diversification, I'd say it, it totally depends on what kind of company that we're dealing with. You know, yeah, it's true. If you are a health tech company, you may want to diversify your technology and focus on retail and financial services. But, but I'd argue that that's probably not your strength and you're better off hoovering up as much as you can in the broader healthcare market, whether that's public or private, and then using the NHS as a brand and a logo to move on to other markets. So, so for some companies in the broader GovTech space, diversification makes sense. Others don't. You know, we've been working with companies that have um, specialized in digital identity at a kind of military grade level, but because they've been able to use a, an anchor customer in the government sector, they're more trusted by uh, you know, staffing operations that have to prove people's identity to ensure that they have a right to work in the UK. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it isn't just a question of can a company diversify or not, but to what extent can an anchor customer in the government send such a powerful signal to the market that other people who might not otherwise be interested will come along and, you know, test buy and hopefully scale products. Yeah, no, makes sense. So maybe going down this road of myth busting, what are the three things that most founders or most people misunderstand about innovation and or go to market with government? I guess the first thing I'd say is um, selling to government is no different than selling to lots of other organizations and at the same time, totally different. Yeah. What I mean by that is, you know, you have to have a solid product. You have to know what your customer is looking for. Um, you know, lots of different theories around sales, but, you know, I always ask myself, um, does the customer have a problem? Does does she know she has a problem and does she have the means to solve that problem? And that's no different than if you're trying to sell the Unilever um, or Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to find that customer and you've got to engage them in a in a way and with a proposition that is attractive to them. And we all know there are different ways to do that. Sometimes you go in through a pilot. Sometimes you need a lot of publicity in order to get a share of mind, which means that they're interested in experimenting. So at that level, it's sort of very similar. Where it is a bit different is... If you if you want to sell above a certain threshold, you have to familiarize yourself with um, you know longer tender processes. Um, those aren't as flexible uh, as they might be if you're selling to a mid-sized company or a smaller company. They don't tend to be that much harder than if you're trying to sell to GE. Um, but it is a certain uh, area of specialism and. And if you are a company that has managed to gain some traction and you're now looking to scale to serious volume, mm-hmm. then, you know, much as if you are operating an enterprise startup, you, you have to familiarize yourself with the particularities of, of that. Um, on the innovation side, you know, a company that we back called Apolitical, which functions as a platform for uh, public sector employees across the world, I think they have something like 22,000 employees across there on the platform. What I think they're, they're emphasizing rather well is that innovators aren't the people sitting on the outside trying to take, talk to some very uninnovative people on the inside. They're innovators on every side of this equation. The, the key is just for them to find each other and to together find ways to unlock a system that hasn't been built for innovation. And it's right. I mean, if we think about what you want a state to do, you know, the idea that a state would sort of constantly reimagine itself and disrupt itself you know, may bode well for you and I, but can be deeply discombobulating for somebody who just wants, 
you know, their social services to be delivered well and their taxes to be managed. So, of course, you know, to a degree, public administration has to be um, sure that its procedures are are well developed, that that there aren't any you know flaws in the accounting system. Yeah, so you're always balancing so, between those two parts. Exactly, you have to balance them, and we we just have to make the case that innovation, while it may not provide an immediate efficiency gain, could provide a much more transformative opportunity. I mean, I'll give you just small examples. You know, if you have a dynamic purchasing system you may discover that actually rather than buying a 1,000 cars for the Ministry of Defense, you only, you only want to buy 453 and then you want to lease another 200 and then you want to uh, take taxi rides for the rest of the time. And that may actually come together to 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 a, a much smaller bill. And, but you're not going to be able to know that unless you have a much more dynamic, data-rich platform to manage purchases. Similarly, if all you're focusing on in a hospital is what comes through the A&E, then for sure... Uh, the NHS will always be unaffordable, um, you know, with a growing population, with comorbidities as people grow older, more people are going to come in. The only way around this is to demand manage, is to figure out a way in which people can manage their cancer treatments better themselves, their diabetes treatments better themselves. Yeah. Again, that's not going to happen inside a hospital, you know, with a bunch of doctors that have been trained. That's only going to happen in a, di- in a partly digital manner um, away from the hospital and people's homes. Uh, that's just another example. Maybe w- one last myth that you'd like to dispel before I, I, I go on to the next question. I guess there was some, sort of a hint in your earlier question that you are at the mercy of political winds. Mm-hmm. And I think the reality is that there is a an underlying trend which I think um, which I think cuts across any particular political perspectives. Um, and that trend is, you know, more people living longer with, you know, different ailments, diseases, and expectations with a pretty stable tax base. Um, and, and the only way you bridge that gap is through new technology. New technology, not by itself, but harnessed uh, in, a, in a way that, that facilitates better services. And sometimes the technology is there to ensure that we have more human-to-human contact rather than less human-to-human contact. But I don't see that going away. And, and you know, should there be a change of government in the UK or as we've seen it elsewhere across the world, um, it's hard for me to imagine that a new government would wake up and say, yeah, let's, let's nationalize all the pharmaceutical companies. You know, we are better at making drugs mm-hmm. than AstraZeneca and GSK. I think that's, that's very unlikely because I think everybody acknowledges that that's, that's probably a specialism best left to the market. True. But I mean, you could argue that similarly there, there's a other, and we were talking before we started recording about sort of climate change and sustainability. And there are some topics that, um, would seem to be ones that need to have a deeper uh, regulation in order for capitalism not to exploit, you know, finite number of resources. How does that, how does that work its way into going from something that is bubbling up within a certain percentage of the population into something that becomes the regular train? And then, and how do you lobby for that? How does that? Well, I mean, you know, you've seen the, the conversation around climate change has been underway for, well, under, about 20 years or so. And in that course, it's gone from, you know, a fringe concern to a mainstream belief. And in the process of that, we've seen extraordinary transformation 
of your know, rules and laws and budgets, you know, arguably not enough. Mm. Um, certainly not if we want to actually make much of a difference. But I think it's a good case of uh, of, a, of a transformation that's taken place, not just on the back of passionate advocacy, but scientific, um, you know, proof points. Uh, and I think particularly the role that the IPCC played in establishing a scientific consensus or the closest that we're going to get to a scientific consensus um, played a, a huge role. Now, at the same time, you know, there are large systems at work and then there are costs associated with everything. And it's fine for some people to say, well, I want everything to be totally changed. Uh, and others in a free and democratic society say, well, that's fine for you to say, but, you know, frankly, I'd like to have my money spent elsewhere. Yeah. The reality is if we're going to live together and in communities of disagreement, mm -hmm. which is effectively what democratic societies are. Mm -hmm. Change will always be moving in these fits and starts. And do you find yourself torn between those fits and starts as you invest in companies? Because your companies are inherently driving towards one of those fits and starts in yeah. some capacity. How do you reconcile that? It's a great question. And I keep trying to ask myself when we engage with question, with, with companies, when we take companies onto our GovStart Accelerator program, when we build companies, when we invest in them, are we doing something transformative? Am I doing something that if I weren't doing it, nobody else would be here doing it? Um, it's okay to have small-scale efficiency plays in a portfolio, um, but on the whole, I, I, I want public, and my co-founder Alex feels very much the same, we want public to be the sort of place that makes these bets that can't be made elsewhere. Mm. Because there are lots of efficiency-focused initiatives. Very few are willing to, to, to seek a sort of transformative uh, shift. Mm. So we try to, to always ask ourselves, is this transformative? And if we don't back this, does it mean anybody else will? Of course, you, you could argue, well, if nobody else is coming in, then um, are you sure of your, your DD? But, you know, I think you have to back yourself and you have to be confident that you know your market better than others. There are others who can know founders better or technology better. And we, we try to learn from those and work with those and become better at it ourselves. But I do, I do try to make sure that the public becomes known for pushing some transformative founders who are trying to do some transformative things in order to, exactly as you say, have a real kind of start, transformative start in the public sector. On the subject of, of companies that might be a bit early in some ways... Uh, maybe this is a good chance for you to plug a couple of companies that you guys have supported where it was that risk you took and that happened to manifest itself right and the company is, is benefiting because of that trend. Yeah, we backed a, a company called AIN, which is looking at digital identity solutions. Uh, and it was a, a sense that there was a transformative technological change underway, which was going to, to make it easier, cheaper, um, to provide digital identity solutions. Um, and uh, and we managed to, to help them over, I think it's fair to say, you know, a difficult period, but they succeeded largely due to a government requirement for right to work um, to be verified for anybody who wants to come to the UK. And if you can imagine, if you're, for example, Amazon, you know, although you outsource it, you're effectively hiring half a million people every Christmas. You know, how do you check that so that's a great example of a company free up another company we were we we're absolutely convinced 
very early on that the way in which people are paid in this economy um, it, you know, is broken. Uh, and we've seen a number of companies emerge in that space, but we were quite pleased to be you know, very early in our support for, for free up. And I think that's now you know, paying off. Um, but we've seen it in, in, in lots of other areas, uh, you know, Mush, uh, a company that is, that is effectively taking uh, a community approach to, to helping new mothers so that they ha- can on their smartphone access um, support from other you know, new mothers. Um, so whether it's uh, healthcare or whether it's security, um, we're seeing a, a number of companies kind of begin to, to get the traction that, that we'd always been hoping for, but, but takes a little bit of early support. Yeah, I mean, that's the nature of the game, right? Um, and, you know, you guys have done a great job of positioning yourselves within this space as the only voice, really, uh, for companies. So maybe it's a, it's a good chance as any to, I mean, you've in some capacity already plugged public, but maybe very specifically what you're looking for. You mean in companies? Yeah, or? companies. So who, what, in, what, what companies should self-qualify by listening to this podcast and wanting to work with you? I think if you are a company that believes that you have a product or even a product idea that can transform a public service, and that can be very broad, right? That can be a public service. It can be waste management. It can be, you know, border control. It can be, um, you know, surgical procedures. It can be uh, cancer uh, you know, management or, or, or medicinal adherence. If you think that you have an idea of a pro or a product, um, that can make a transformative change, either because you have up worked within the sector or because you have some other familiarity, or even if you have no familiarity, that's the sort of stuff that we look for. People like that who have that product, have that idea. You may be so early that you have a few wireframes and nothing else. Or you may already have some customers, either in the public sector or in an adjacent area, um, but you kind of need some help in transforming that into a scalable proposition, then that's what we're looking for. Excellent. And what is the hardest thing that they have been finding themselves in in managing that early customer? When when you see companies come to you, what is the thing that they're usually struggling that you, like the first thing you do is like, look, guys, all right, this is the thing that I can do the most value for you guys and this is what you've been doing wrong. I mean, you'd expect me to say this. It's sort of horses for courses. It sort of depends on who's walked through the door. But if you had to generalize, and a lot of people struggle with um, the kind of proof points that make sense to a government buyer. So they're, they're, if they come out of some of the accelerators, they're very used to pitching their solutions in a very, you know, San Francisco-based mm-hmm. format. And that really isn't the way you talk to a public sector buyer. Um, it sounds hubristic and overpromising, and 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 so there's a sort of adjustment required, oftentimes, to say, well, well, how do we credentialize you in front of that government buyer so that they come to see you as a serious, credible proposition, not one that's built um, on hot air. It can be, you know, entrepreneurial and enthusiastic and ambitious, perhaps. You know, over ambitious, mm-hmm. but there's got to be a sense of foundation. And, and sometimes, you know, you have that already in the product and sometimes you've got to build it. Sometimes you have that in, um, you know, the, the, the customer uh, intelligence. Uh, sometimes 
They don't have that. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's about taking stuff that already exists and kind of packaging it slightly differently. Mm-hmm. And sometimes saying, you guys need to go on this journey because unless you have these proof points, then it's going to be very hard for you to be allowed in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is to kind of also situate... I come back to my point about selling to the government is like selling everywhere else. You have to have um, a reputation for you know, delivery, solidity, mm-hmm. and seriousness. And so often it's about helping companies, you know, explain what it is that they, they can achieve uh, and using language that that the buyer uh, is going to find convincing and persuasive. Mm-hmm. You know, my CTO, if he was listening to this, um, would probably say, yes, and build, you know, a back end that complies with all the requ- security requirements and so on. And, and, and of course, he's entirely right. And we do help companies with that. But that's, in a sense, the sine qua non. Like, if you don't do that, you're not yeah. going to get through the no. door. Yeah. Um, you, companies do need help, especially when they want to scale products um, and ensure that security features are, are maintained. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, people come to us with a great, neat, tightly developed thing that doesn't really scale while maintaining some of the you know, the, the features, the, the security you know, mm-hmm. concerns. Well, one of the things that people find generally difficult when transitioning from, you know, corporate job or whatever to entrepreneurship is the shock <laughs> of that life. You know, the shock of not only fundraising, but of cash flow and, and how difficult it is to close a customer. You've spent such a large part of your career um, in government. What's been the biggest shock for you transitioning to the public? I smile when you say this because I, 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 I think back to my early days where I, I literally had nothing and um, the guys at Passion Capital were kind enough to, to allow me a desk and I sat there and, and there was nothing on my desk because I had no papers and I had my phone and eventually they got so tired that they bought me a laptop on Amazon Prime for £126 and so I had a laptop and a phone and, and literally nothing else and I went to a couple of meetings and people said to me oh this is very interesting do you have a deck and I said yeah of course I have a deck and I and I, and I had to Google what a deck was. I literally had no idea what a deck was. Mm. Of course, um, I didn't have anything else either. I had no printer. I had no fax. I had no, uh, you know, no company. I had nothing. Um, but even more so, I didn't even know what a deck was. Um, and so I, I, when I discovered what I had to do, um, I realized that my PowerPoint skills were just never going to be good enough to, I think, do justice to my idea. So I went on people per hour and I got a uh, Kuram in India to uh, to do my first PowerPoint presentation, nice. and and then I that's how I ended up with a deck, and then, then I had a deck. Uh, I later had an employee. I think my second employee came and said, "Look, you know, I do a bit of design on the side. Please allow me to to redo the logo and the brand." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Yeah, go ahead." And he did, and it's, we we've, we basically stayed with the same brand. But it was a massive transformation. You know, I went from having you know at my fingertips the the service of the smartest people you know that the government um, can bring not just in number 10 where you can imagine you know you only really get the the sort of the, the cream of the crop but also across government and any area I was interested in you could snap your fingers and you could um, get information inside market intelligence and suddenly I was sitting by myself had nothing um, my boiler also broke um, and so 
For a moment, I was wondering what the hell I was doing since I had run out of money, didn't have a business that worked, and I couldn't afford to get a new boiler. Um, but I'm really pleased about all these things now in retrospect, because when founders come and, and, and talk to us about their journey, you know, I feel I've just lived that journey. Yeah, well, I mean, you, start, you started a fund, in yeah. fact. So, yeah, many of the same challenges. Well, I always like to wrap up with one question about yourself or some view that you might have. And, and I think I had mentioned to you that uh, one of my favorite questions is um, really a retrospective one. Uh, it's you look back today into some of the horrible things that we did um, to previous generations and we think, how did we let that happen? Um, what do you think we'll look back in 50 years from now and look back to 2019 and be like, what in the world were we thinking? And you're not allowed to say Bitcoin. I won't say that. <laughs> I think that, um, I think just as you were speaking, I was, it sort of dawned on me that I think we will have a very broad idea of what pollution is and we will be shocked at the way we polluted ourselves. And what I mean is we have a very um, kind of singular idea of pollution today. You know, it's about the atmosphere mm. and you know, air pollution. But I think that we will have a much more profound idea of what pollution is. We'll think about pollution not just in the air, but with noise. We'll think about pollution as we sort of pollute our arteries. And we'll think about, we'll have a very broad idea of how we polluted ourselves in what we listened to, in what we ate, in what we breathed. And we'll think to ourselves, we can't believe that we allowed all that, all those inverted commas, pollutants in lots of different ways to 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 make us sicker, whether physically or mentally, I, I think we, in a way, there would be, you know, when I think about noise levels, pollution levels, food, and so on, I just think I have this idea that that we will we will move towards a less polluting world, and we'll think it's mad that we allowed all this all this pollution in many ways around us. Yeah, well, if you find any companies that are addressing that, I would love <laughs> to hear about it. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. Great. Until next time, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.